This episode is brought to you by Berkland Associates. Okay, so your company is growing fast. Stuff's moving a thousand miles a minute. It's exciting, but all that speed without the right systems in place can hurt you at scale. Enter Berkland Associates. Fractional CFOs, bookkeepers, tax and people ops experts, Berkland helps you build the right systems that can keep up with your growth and can handle all the finance, accounting, tax, and hiring services that consumer startups need to scale. From ensuring your fundamentals are sound to making sure you're prepared for the next funding round, Berkland Associates gets consumer startups. For more information, head to berklandassociates.com and you can check out their toolkits for startups as well. Link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Skillful. As you know, we've been talking about Skillful. Skillful runs online immersive programs that help people launch and accelerate careers in strategic business roles in tech. By joining one of their sprints, not only do you get direct access to mentors who live and breathe the jobs daily, but you also get access to the Skillful community even after your sprint ends. Skillful is a group of ambitious, humble, and generous business professionals from across North America who take action to accelerate each other's careers, referrals, candid advice, mentors hiring mentees onto their teams, and so much more magic. You'll get access to an internal job board where community members connect other Skillfulers directly with hiring managers. And you can create a network that is more engaged and relevant to your current career than your college alumni network. Become a Skillful Insider or apply for an upcoming cohort at joinskillful.com. Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Will McClellan, for the intro to our guest today, Sarah LaFleur, founder of M.M. LaFleur. M.M. LaFleur creates luxury apparel and accessories with the same attention to detail as high-end fashion houses. This was such a great chat about how to launch a luxury apparel business and as well as how to adapt during covid and new consumer tastes. Without further ado, here's Sarah.
Sarah, thank you so much for coming on to the show. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. That's great to hear. That's terrific. That's terrific. I wanted to start at the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't even think of myself as an entrepreneur today, although I, I, I realize that that is how I am defined and I'm thought of. I think I had uh, a problem that I thought I needed, you know, needed to be solved. And I honestly thought, oh, someone, someone should work on this. Someone should design better clothing for uh, corporate women. But I, I didn't think that it had to be me. But I would say I, I was very interested in it. And I think I was, it felt very personal to me. So when the opportunity came up, and when I say opportunity came up, what I mean is when I was unemployed and I didn't know what to do with my life, I decided that that was something I wanted to give a try. So, so that was, that was my, you know, my, my beginning of entrepreneurship. But it's, it, I, it's funny you say that because you just reminded me of a conversation that I had when I was at Bain. And I remember, you know, one of the partners came in to talk about entrepreneurship and he actually said, you know, if you like entrepreneurs, they're a different breed. Like if you're an entrepreneur, you know it in your heart. And I was like, well, I don't know it in my heart, so I must not be an entrepreneur. But you know, I think he was wrong. I think entrepreneurship comes in many forms. I agree with you. I think that we've kind of heard this time and time again on the show where you have some folks who really want to be entrepreneurs and are looking for opportunities in terms of, you know, whether it actually could be maybe a gap in the market or, or, or an entry point, no matter what the category is. And then you have others who there wasn't the intention was actually never to be an entrepreneur but this problem just irked them and irked them so much and so much and finally they said well if no one else is doing it i'm gonna do it and so it seemed like more so you might have fallen to that second category if that's fair to say yeah totally fair and i think even now you know mm is 10 years in almost 10 years in, i should say and you know people ask me would you ever you know do another startup not that i'm thinking of leaving MM. In fact, I think this is um, the job I want to do for the rest of my life. But I, you know, I always think like I, I would never just start a company for the sake of starting a company, I, unless I felt like it was something that I was really personally driven to solve. So, so I think you're right. I, I would fall into that latter category. When was your first inklings that when you thought about women's formal wear, did you have a background in fashion? Did you? What were like the current options, and what what kind of made you? realize that, hey, maybe there's actually an opportunity here to start a company? I think I knew it because I was a consumer. And so my first kind of real job out of school was um, working as a management consultant. And I thought it was really, really hard to shop for good clothing. It's not that there were there weren't options, but the options that existed were really uninspiring. Um, I felt like I was spending a lot of a lot of money on clothes I didn't really particularly like, but it was what I had to buy because it was appropriate. And the fit was really bad. The fabric was kind of low quality. The tailoring was horrible. So I would often go to my tailor in Chinatown to have things taken in or let out. And my mom worked in high-end fashion. Um, and so I think through her, you know, she would bring home these pieces and, and show them to me. And I kind of got to see firsthand what really beautiful tailoring looked like. Or I remember actually, you know, I had this one skirt that I had gotten at uh, some sort of sample sale and 
it just fit me so much better than anything else I owned. And I felt great when I wore that skirt. And I'm sure everyone can relate to this feeling of like, when you put on your favorite jacket or your favorite dress or what have you, and you look yourself in the mirror and you're like, damn, I look good. Damn, I feel like I can do anything today. And, you know, I think clothing is often thought of as this kind of maybe trivial aspect of your performance or who you are as a person. But I actually think clothing is magic. And there is there is a lot of energy that it can give you. Also can change the way I think other people perceive you. So I think that's that was really the inkling, the first, the first uh, time I had that idea. No, that's great. I mean, it reminds me of a conversation too, just uh, from that consumer lens. Uh, when I talked to uh, Andy Dunn, the founder of Bonobos, and he was saying how when he was starting Bonobos, that it was in, in some vein, but looking at men's pants and how men's pants didn't actually fit really correctly, and there was maybe a misalignment, a certain figure that uh, that pants didn't cover. And once you actually felt it, that and once you actually tried them on, that oh my gosh, this is so much better than the alternatives out there. And you can certainly feel it and just feel so much better. So that's it's very, very cool that you were able to, uh, that kind of starting to source and starting to maybe just experiment with what eventually became MM LaFleur, um, that's, that's just a really, really cool. So what was like the next steps after you realize, okay, obviously you, you're very serious, you want to start a business, you, you're going to be launching MM LaFleur. What were... How were you able to source and what was kind of like that process like? I think what I didn't really understand at the time was how hard it was going to be to break in with into the supply chain. And what I mean by that is, you know, fashion, I think, is a very turbulent industry. So designers come and go all the time, you know, new new brands launch and they're also fairly quick to go belly up. And so I would say generally fabric mills and factories are pretty skeptical of, of newcomers. And so I thought, you know, if we went to a factory and we paid money and said, will you please make this for us, then people would. And what I had to learn the hard way was that you had to beg them <laughs> to make things for you. You had to beg them to take your money. And really, I think if it were just me, you know, they were like, what? You worked in management consulting? What the hell does that have to do with fashion? I think it was really like Miyako's credibility that opened a lot of doors for us. And so, you know, we made our first line of dresses in the garment district in New York City. I'll never forget our first factory was on 37th between 7th and 8th Avenue. And then one of the first mills that worked with us is a mill that we still partner with um, based out of Italy. They make the most gorgeous wool. And that was because, you know, this guy, uh, Steve, really took a chance on us. But it was hard in the beginning just actually, you know, getting people to sell you stuff. I did I did not expect that to be such a challenge. Yeah, no, I mean like we've we, we've talked about in um on this show when it comes to folks that are designing. We've had we've had a shoe company, Zero Shoes on and also Bonobos and and also Parachute. I remember Remember when talking to Ariel at Parachute, she was saying how like just the minimum order quantity, of course, you you, you kind of have to go for it, but uh, but it also is is tough because that minimum order quantity is still is still quite huge, right? For sure. I mean, I cannot tell you the the fear I felt when I placed my first order for a hundred um, yards of fabric, and I think I had to place them in across three colors, and I had to pick the three colors out of some variety. And it felt like a life or death decision because in some ways it was, you know, you're, you're taking a chunk of your cash 
and putting that towards inventory. And guess what? If people don't like that inventory, then you're sitting on cash you cannot move. And one thing I think that we were were clever about, and and this is really what I recommend other entrepreneurs who have a, a consumer startup, is to start with samples and to take orders based on the samples and then put in a purchase order. You know, Miyako and I, when we, when we first uh, did our first trunk show, we had seven dresses and number two, the Miyako dress was actually my favorite. And I thought that was the one that was going to go gangbusters. We got two orders for it. And had we placed orders using my assumptions for what I thought would have sold, we would have been sitting on that inventory forever. And so to the extent possible, I really, really recommend just holding samples, even if samples cost more because they always do, but just investing in samples and taking orders, uh, taking orders based on that. Because I think as a, as a first time, and even though we've been doing this, this business for 10 years, you know, planning is, is really, customers can take you by surprise. Um, sometimes what you think is going to sell is not what's going to sell. And the thing that you think is going to do poorly ends up being your best seller. So that's just a piece of advice I share. I love that piece of advice. I appreciate you sharing how you approached customer research before you actually um, made the initial pieces. Even kind of before that, what was maybe your marketing strategy even to get the samples out in the hands of potential customers? We did not have a marketing strategy. We also didn't have money. But what I knew was that there were other women like me out there who wanted this as an option. And so really the first thing I did was I I tapped kind of my own circle and I said, okay, all of my fellow colleagues at Bain or, you know, I had friends who were either going to law school or um, were, you know, had, I think were like on their way to becoming lawyers And I, you know, just said, you know, I'm doing a trunk show. Would you, would you be interested in coming? And the first two trunk shows that we hosted were legitimately, I think, you know, 90% of them who showed up were people who were our friends, but slowly, but surely we started to see people we had never met. And we didn't, they, it was funny because, you know, I remember there were, there were a group of women who came from. Uh, like a, a bank. And I said, how did you hear about us? And she was like, oh, you know, I don't really know, but I think someone was talking to someone else who was wearing one of your dresses, like in the cafeteria. And, you know, they told me that you were going to have a trunk show. So here we are. And it was kind of crazy to see, you know, I think by the the last trunk show that we hosted um, that year, there was, there was a line of people out the door, just, just trying to get in. And we were like, where did these people come from? And so there was a huge, uh, word of mouth element to it in the beginning. We, it was totally unexpected because we really had done zero advertising, uh, aside from just telling our close friends that this is what we were doing. That's first of all, amazing. Secondly, that's a great sign too, um, that you kind of have that word of mouth, um, that people are so excited for these samples and what you're presenting that, uh, they're telling all their friends and and then their friends are coming out and then, and then what have you. And that's, that's super, I, I can't even imagine just having like a line out, even when, even kind of pre-launch, you haven't even launched anything that must've been really, really just an amazing feeling. Yeah, it was, it was, I think, I think I, we had spent about a year just on the product and, I think we were very determined to make something different and better than our competitors out there. And I think this felt like the final test, you know, was the past year in vain or have we actually made something different? And I think just the, the excitement around 
the people who came really showed us that, okay, maybe, maybe we've done something, something special here. We should keep going. I love that. I love that. And so after the final of your presentation with uh, showing samples and, and kind of getting people very excited, what was the initial launch strategy? Uh, I think we said, okay, these, these trunk shows went well, clearly people like our products. I think at that point we had kind of figured out, you know, the, the skeleton of the supply chain. And so we said, okay, I think we should go and launch the site now. And it's funny you mentioned Andy, because I think, um, Bonobos, Warby Parker, you know, they were both huge inspirations for us. Um, and they, they, you know, I have told both of the founders of, of these two companies this, and they always laugh, but I was like, you guys made it look so easy from the outside. It was like you launched a site and you put on product and it went gangbusters and they're like, you don't even know, (laughs) you don't even know the full story. Um, but I think, you know, just looking from the outside, I was like, wow, like it, it feels like that it feels like it's supposed to be that easy. And so we launched the website um, on January 1st, 2013. I'll never forget. It was like launch 3 a.m. right after we rang in the new year. I think the first day of sales, we had like maybe a dozen, but then like the next day it dropped to like six and then the next day it dropped to three. And then like pretty soon it was like crickets, you know, there was, there was zero momentum on the econ side. I think Nuri and I were kind of shocked. We were like, you know, what is going on here? Like what, what happened? Um, and I think at that point, you know, we were still so naive, uh, because, because we had had good sales at these trunk shows. Um, and when I say naive, I mean, we were naive about a lot of things, but we were very naive about selling, uh, selling things on e-commerce. And I think just to put it into context, like we, our dresses at that point cost, I think around 295, so almost $300. And, uh, this was like e-com 2.0. It was still like pretty nascent stages. And now people are comfortable buying, you know, $2,000 Pelotons online. It's like, that's just the norm now. But I think back then, like buying a dress that cost that much, there was a lot of hesitancy and reluctance about it. You know, I, you know, I have, I can't even touch it. I can't see it. I can't feel the fabric. Um, how can I commit to something that costs three hundred dollars? And and I think it took us a while to really figure that out as 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 a point of friction in our product that we were offering and the channel we were offering it through. What were throughout like the next year or so uh, in twenty thirteen? How were you able to make MM LaFleur online not as much as a risk to consumers, you know, kind of bringing down those periods of, uh, of friction? And so consumers would, would be a lot more comfortable buying from you. It really was the launch of Bento, um, which as a company, we don't even offer anymore. But it was essentially a, for lack of a better word, a box service where customers would come online, fill out a brief survey tell us a little bit about themselves. And then based on that, we were creating a box for them saying, we think this would look great on you. And when we launched that um, in 2014, our revenue tripled overnight. Um, It was kind of crazy to see that, you know, the only thing that was changing about our company at that point. So the products were the same, the prices were the same, the branding was exactly the same. The only thing that had changed was we were now telling customers, instead of going through the site and ordering for yourself, let us do the picking for you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll make the box for you. 
And when we put this message front and center, our business took off uh, in a way that it it never could the past 18 months. And that was really the game-changing moment for our business. Uh, and even that, you know, truth be told, it came about because we were sitting under a mountain of inventory. We didn't know how to move these, these dresses. You know, talk about, like, at that point, we had gone past the sample phase. So we were actually holding um, a lot of our products uh, as inventory and we didn't know how to move them. So we, we reached out to our very small pool of existing customers and said, like, if we send you a box of clothes, like, would you try them on? And you can keep whatever you like, return whatever you don't like, but like, would you be willing to try? And we got such an uh, enormous response from that. And when I say enormous, you know, better than any other email marketing email we had sent up until that point. So we decided to try that with new customers, you know, customers whose email addresses we had, but who had never purchased us from, uh, purchased from us yet. And a surprising number of customers said, yeah, sure, I'd be willing to give it a try. Like, I've been meaning to shop from you. I just didn't know, you know, which ones to try. And I think that was really the big unlock for us, for our business, It is really taking away some of that decision paralysis that, that really existed at that time when we were such a nascent brand. And when buying expensive products online was still relatively novel. And that really allowed us to scale our company from, you know, I think it was like 1 million to 8 million to 30 million to 60 million, basically year over year. I mean, it was, it was kind of phenomenal growth that happened in that, in that period. That's amazing. It's such a fascinating to just like a consumer mindset in that part of the friction, it seems, was consumers actually having to make decisions on what to actually buy. Um, on your site. Whereas you're taking that friction away. You're saying, hey, fill out the survey and then we'll send you product, but then also kind of ease the the consumer and saying, you can return anything you don't like, no worries. That quadrupled your growth. That's amazing. That's really cool. Really cool. I wanted to know, like, has there been a shift at all in COVID in terms of preferences um, when it comes to formal wear? Because we're not yet going back in the office. I know, I know we talk about how we're in this kind of weird limbo period, but I'd love to know when March uh, 2020 hit last year and we all got the sense that, okay, we don't know how long we're going to be kind of locked up for, but it's going to be some time since we go back into the office. What was kind of going through your mind as you were guiding uh, your business? It was a scary time. I think it was kind of, it was so shocking. I think the term that, that a lot of investors have used is the, is the black swan event, but it felt kind of unbelievable. You know, February had been one of our best sales months, uh, February, 2020. And we, had heard about COVID happening um, through our supply chain because we've got partners all across the world, China, Italy, Vietnam. And, and so we kind of, from those countries had had indications that this was going to be a thing. But I think, you know, we had had pandemics before the Ebola crisis just a few years back that never really arrived on the American shore. So I think we, we modeled some scenarios, but, you know, what actually took place in March and April far exceeded our worst expectations. And, um, and we were, we were really in a state of shock. We closed all of our stores. Um, we had to furlough a bunch of our employees. Um, the executive team all took pay cuts. And I think it, it came, it became very existential for us. I will say, I think, you know, simultaneously this existential question about, you know, what is MM 
in a world where people are dressing more casually, we had actually been um, addressing, grappling with and addressing that question from a few years back, because I think that trend was already starting, you know, I, I would say in even in 2016, 2017, we were seeing that. And so we actually designed a collection in spring of 2018 that was based on Miyako's and my observations and um, customer research that we had done going out to San Francisco because we had been hearing for a, from a lot of women in tech saying, hey, like I have a pretty relaxed dress code, but that doesn't mean I'm going to wear jeans and a t-shirt to work. And in fact, like that's not what I want to wear. I definitely have like more style that I want to exhibit, uh, more style that I want to want to show. But if I dress up too much, people think I'm interviewing. So like, can you show me the right dress code? And Miyako, I think, thought that was like such an interesting challenge. And we ended up releasing a collection um, and then calling that category power casual. So if you think about just levels of business formality, you've got business formal and then you've got business casual. And then I would say like below that is probably creative casual. But we kind of created this new category that that I'll call power casual is what is, you know, what we were saying back then. Uh, Now power casual, you know, during covid it became the majority of our business. And at, and today I would also say, you know, it's 50% plus of our, our business is really driven by that power casual category. Even customers, I think that were in more traditional industries, whether it's law or finance are now saying like, okay, I don't want to dress up too much. Um, and actually I don't, I don't want to give up the comfort that I, I discovered during COVID. Like I, I love my elastic waistband. I love, I loved um, just how comfortable I felt. And I think at MM, you know, we really pride ourselves on our clothes always making you feel like you're put together. And so um, I think what we've always done best is making people look put together, making women look like they're on top of the world while, while also making them feel really comfortable in the clothes that they're, that they're wearing. So I think stretchiness in fabrics, elastic waistbands, like these things are very central now to the designs that we do. And it's something that we'll probably continue to do um, for, for the next few years at least. With the change, though, now that it being, um, I think, as you said, like 50% of your business, was that very difficult to navigate on the supply chain side since you had to carry um, a lot more of like the power casual side versus, you know, the super formal? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like T-shirts we had introduced in April 2020, kind of, you know, we we were going to do it regardless of COVID, but T-shirts sold through immediately. Like we had these jogger pants called the Colby joggers. Those sold through immediately. We had a lot of categories where we, and, and actually it's so funny, loungewear, you know, we had a cashmere robe that again, like sold through immediately, even though it was such a slow seller up until that point. And, you know, I think the, the tricky thing about fashion is first of all, like my design team is already working on fall 22 right now. So they're a year out. And then a lot of the planning is also, you know, six to nine months out. So I think just even in your mind, you understand the strategy shifts that you need to make or the the purchasing decisions that you need to make. Often you can't really, you can act on those decisions immediately, but you're not going to see the fruits of your labor until several months out. Um, so I think there was a lot of, you know, we were, we were frustrated by like a lot of the missed opportunity there. Um, but eventually we caught up, you know, I would say by spring of 21. So this past year, um, we, so the collection we launched in, in spring 21, we called mentally I'm here and we shot it on a beach in Hawaii, and, which I think like, just like perfectly encapsulated how so many of us were feeling at that time. Right. Which is like, oh my gosh, it's especially for those of us in the Northeast, it was like, it won't stop snowing. We're still in lockdown. 
Um, the insurrection was happening. Everything felt so dark. And, and then we launched this beautiful, beautiful collection, very much driven by this power casual ethos. And our photo shoot team happened to be out in Hawaii. And so, you know, we didn't even, we didn't fly out for the photo shoot. We just literally sent our clothes on the Delta flight. It picked it up on the other end and this beautiful, uh, beautiful photo shoot of, of our clothes on the beach. Um, and I think that's actually probably some of our secret sauce is really trying to get into the heads of our customers. And, and actually the fall collection we just launched, um, we named that one for my next trick. Because I think what so many people are feeling right now is like, okay, what's next for me now? Like I had this like, uh, you know, incredibly trying, but in some ways like a gift of a period to really reflect on where it is that, that, that I am in my life. Um, and we really wanted our clothes to reflect that. So, um, that's one, that's kind of, you know, a fun thing that we've gotten to do during this COVID time. That's really cool. I think what's really impressive is I'd imagine when a customer originally would think about MM, they would probably think about formal wear and maybe very, very formal wear for women, but you were able to expand that mind share in order for other categories and other ways to think about your company. And clearly it certainly resonated, which is actually very, very difficult to do, right? Uh, Very, very difficult, a lot easier said than done. So, I mean, I I just very, very much applaud you for doing that. I also wanted to touch on too, um, the, the fundraising piece. When did you decide to first fundraise and why did you choose uh, going fundraising as opposed to bootstrapping your business? I think I have ambitions for making this a really great, big business. You know, I think um, I was told in the early days, oh, you know, good for you. You started a a real niche business for yourself or this is a a niche category. And I I kind of said to myself, you know, I mean, what about what about professional women is a niche category? Because, you know, there are. 15 million working women spending roughly a hundred billion dollars in clothing, uh, every year, uh, a good portion of which is worn to work. Uh, and so it felt like people weren't really understanding the full opportunity. And I, I think I, I very much believed that, you know, working, working women, working professional women weren't a niche category and that there was an opportunity to dress them in clothes that they loved, that they, they liked so much better than the competition could I have bootstrapped it? No, I, I, I definitely, yes, I, I'm sure I could have bootstrapped it and it, it would have remained, I would hope a, a good business, but probably a, a, a very small one. Um, and I think a lot of the brand awareness that we were able to build and the just amazing people that I've gotten to hire was a result of the money I was able to raise. Oh, that's really, really um, great to know because the word uh, lifestyle business gets thrown around when it comes to consumer businesses often. Which is so funny because like it is so hard running a, a consumer business, no matter what category in, you're in. So I do remember it's so funny. I actually had a female investor say to me like, oh, like sounds like you have a really great lifestyle business on your hands. And I was like, what is she talking about? You know, but um, I, I mean, I actually do have friends who are running consumer businesses and they have not raised money. And it's just as hard, if not harder. So I, yes, thank you for acknowledging that. I, I really think it's like a, a like kind of a, a condescending thing that that is often used in conjunction with like describing small businesses or businesses that, that women start. Um, and so thank you for pointing that out. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I don't know. I also just don't love the term lifestyle businesses, if I'm going to be honest, because you can grow massive businesses and those businesses are lifestyles. 
you know, in, in, in some ways, right? Totally. That's so true. That's such a good point. I mean, obviously I use the term because I don't know what else to use because um, people know what it means. But yeah, I never really loved that. But what was it like? I know you you raised like a friends and family round and then you went on to raise your series A, which congratulations. What was the differences raising from friends and family versus maybe raising from institutional investors? I would say, so we have done friends and family. We've done series A, series B. We've done a series B1, you know, which uh, could have been our series C, but we called it a series B1. I will say it has gotten progressively easier, which I can't even believe I'm saying that because no fundraise is easy. But if I think about the first $400,000 that I raised from friends and family, they, they weren't even friends and family. I mean, I'll, I think I'll, I'll be really clear. Like, I think my, so I put in $30,000 of my own money and my parents let me $30,000 of their money. So that was the friends and family portion. And then, and then it was just contacting friends of friends of friends of friends. And the first $400,000 I raised is the hardest amount of money I've ever raised. And it doesn't even kind of compare to, I think the slog, uh, you know, raising the series B does not compare to the slog of, of raising for that round. I think it was also, you know, I was raising in 2012, 2013, VC investing. I mean, it's it was still quite nascent. And this idea of investing in female entrepreneurs or in female consumer products, femtech, was also very nascent. So I think, you know, we say that I, I think the stack goes like 2% of VC funding goes to um female-led businesses today, but I can't, I mean, I think it must, it must have had, uh, must have been less than that um, back then. And it was pretty painful. I, I got a lot of feedback that was around, you know, well, it, it's a niche business. Um, but I think the most honest piece of feedback, which I am still like very grateful for is one of my investors who actually invested later in a personal capacity, he said, you know, so sorry, Sarah, we're just four guys sitting around a room trying to get a gut instinct on your product. And and we can't because we don't, we don't wear what you sell. And, um, I think that was, that was like actually just so refreshing to hear after what had been a really grueling several months of raising, trying to figure out what is it that I'm doing wrong. And maybe thinking that was like the first time where I was like, huh, like maybe it's not me. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was so trying. And I think, um, the institutional money that came afterwards, um, I would say it was like really a reflection of, of, of the business, uh, doing well. And I think the numbers were there. And so I took, I raised my series A much later than I think most startups would raise their series A. Uh, but as a result, I also got to hold on to a, a bigger stake in my company. I would say, you know, I, I got to chart a, potentially a, a, a slightly different path from consumer businesses that would have raised their series A earlier. It's amazing. What's tragic about that is the overwhelming amount of investors are men, right? And so if then if investors then only invest in what they could know, then you're going to even have such a harder time in order to invest if you are a um, are a company whose customer is a woman, right? So I think that's also really, really tough too, that why it's incredibly difficult for women entrepreneurs that are that are trying to serve that is targeting a woman customer. But I, I really appreciate you, you you sharing your experiences there. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? This is like a, a quite academic answer, but I think it, it's maybe like it kind of ties back to why I started MM, which is um, 
It's this book called The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. She is also known, I think, as Jean-Paul Sartre's lover, but uh, she was a philosopher and a writer in her own right. And so I actually, I, I read this book in college and um, basically what, what she kind of questions is like, why do women do anything? Uh, why do women wear makeup, you know, put on heels, wear dresses? You know, is it essentially, is it all in service for the other sex. And I think she made me kind of fundamentally question everything that women do and how much of it is kind of uh, performative and in service of someone else rather than, than yourself. And, um, uh, it, it kind of then like spurred this, I would say angsty, you know, a teenage college moment for me where I like stopped wearing all makeup and started wearing kind of billowy clothes and um, experimented, I think a little bit uh, with, with my femininity or a lack thereof. And um, you know, it, it's funny cause now I have, I have gone into the business of, of clothing and um, you know, what, what I kind of ultimately walked away from, uh, from that, that kind of period of, of this, like this experiment that I was doing, uh, for myself was that I actually didn't feel great about myself, um, kind of rolling out of bed and, you know, dressing sloppily and, and all of that. And I, you know, it was kind of one of those moments where I realized, wow, I, I, so much of what I do, yes, I'm sure deep down there is some sort of performative aspect to it, but so much of, of what I do, uh, when I put on makeup or when I fix my hair or when I, when I put on clothes, I'm doing it for myself. And so I would say that was like a, a personally pretty transformational book, but I guess you could say professionally too. It never really kind of made that connection until now, until you asked that question. But, um, it was, uh, I, I, I had some angsty moments in college. <laughs> um, so, so that, that I would say is, is, uh, something that I think about a lot. I really appreciate you sharing that. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? Um, I would say it takes longer than you think. And um, I sometimes have, you know, we, we, have, we sometimes have interns work uh, at MM and we've had a number of MBA interns. And it, 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 when I ask them, okay, you know, what do you think you want to do next? And they say, well, I think I'm going to work on my own startup like over the summer. And um if it doesn't have traction, then I'm going to pl- start applying for some jobs in the fall. And I'm like, but that's, that's like three months. Like you're never going to know if your startup has traction in three months, you know, try three years. And I think often, you know, people who start companies, they have set these very strict timelines for themselves and it would be wonderful. Everything moves so quickly. But I think, um, what people don't realize often, I think when they leave corporate America or whatever job they had is like that job is up and running because it's been around for a while and things move faster. But when you're trying to go from nothing to something, like everything's just going to move slower. Everything's going to take twice as long. And so I would say, give yourself time. Um, and what I would also say is get a side hustle. That's, that's actually probably my number one advice. I was tutoring maybe the first three years of starting MM. 
Um, I didn't take a salary, but I made enough money through my tutoring to basically pay my rent and, you know, pay, pay for food and, and kind of basic needs. And that just took the pressure off. Like I didn't have this artificial timeline because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to run out of my savings in six months. So I can't, you know, if something doesn't happen in six months, then I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, go apply for, for another job. Um, I think just having a side hustle, uh, and ideally health insurance, um, Starbucks offers great health insurance, you know, that will give you kind of the breathing room you need to give your, your idea a fair shot. So that, that is always what I tell founders. Sarah, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Mike. This is wonderful. Um, and congratulations. And I'm so glad you're doing something like this. Because let me just tell you, in 2011, when I was thinking of starting my startup, I wish I had had this. So thank you. So kind. So kind. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been a lot of fun. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Sarah. I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.